By the way, may I say that I smoked five cigarettes today and I'm not a smoker, just so I don't sound like a 12-year-old girl. You did not. Every time I listen to myself, I'm like, obviously I need to develop a smoking habit. (laughs) Obviously. All right. Is anybody listening? Hello and welcome to the Collier Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer. I'm the vice chair of the Collier Democratic Party and the host of this podcast. Thank you guys for clicking on. On this week's podcast, we have a terrific interview with Dr. Amanda Phelan, who is an economist with University of Florida's Warrington College of Business. Dr. Phelan and I discuss what has happened to the economy and COVID-19, and we look what was happening before the pandemic into a diverging economy with growing income inequality and so much more. Uh, We have our panel discussion with Amber and Linda, where we dive into the explosion of COVID-19 cases in Immokalee and discuss some of the issues surrounding the disparity that communities of color are experiencing with coronavirus. But first, let's go into some party news. We have an ongoing virtual phone banks going on throughout the month of June, where we encourage every one of you to get involved in that. We're contacting Democrats and like-minded MPAs, no party affiliation, to encourage them to sign up for vote by mail and to get involved. So you can go to our website, www.callyourdems.org, to sign up to become a volunteer. The Florida Democratic Party has also launched efforts to target voters to sign up for vote by mail, and they are having virtual phone banks as well as sending out postcards to every single registered Democrat in Collier County and across the state to encourage them to sign up. So you can also get involved with that through our website as well. We do have some events to promote over the next week. Uh, June 6th, this Saturday at 4 p.m., the Biden campaign for president will have a virtual community organizing event. You can sign up for that at our website. Go to our calendar and go to Saturday, June 6th, and you will see the event on the calendar, and you can click on the link to sign up. You will be giving a virtual logon and be able to attend. There will be a Biden campaign field organizer there. He wants to hear from the local community to hear about issues that matter here in Collier, but they will also update you on what's going on in the Biden campaign generally, as well as some of the plans they have for Collier County. So I encourage everyone to sign up for that. We also want to let you guys know of uh, on June 10th, the NAACP is having a We Can't Breathe memorial at the Collier County Courthouse. Uh, this is protesting the deaths of George Floyd and so many unarmed black men and women over the last few years. The organizers are asking you to please wear masks and practice social distancing while attending this Wednesday at June 10th at 6 p.m. at the Collier County Courthouse. We encourage everyone there to go. And as always, I want everyone to please check out all candidates that are running this year. Uh, We have a great slate and they need your help. They need your support. They need your time, so if you can please go to our website, check out all the candidates there. We have a a large slate of them, and we encourage you to sign up to help them. But lastly, the Collier County Democratic Party stands in solidarity with the protesters who have marched peacefully in the streets across this country and here in Collier County as well, and those who continue to demand change in our country and justice for the murder of George Floyd and so many other unarmed black men and women. We've seen this so often over the last decade. Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, 
Philando Castile, Michael Brown, Ahmad Arbery, Brianna Taylor, and now George Floyd. Seven human beings who are known to us only because their deaths were caught on camera. But so many other abuses go unseen and unheard of. Unheard of and unseen by white Americans. The police are but a symptom of the larger problem in America. It's not just the police. White Americans have called the police on black people for birdwatching and for showing up to a Starbucks. The problem is systemic boundaries set up over centuries that barricade people of color into a limited American existence, an existence that has led to higher rates of incarceration, higher levels of poverty, and higher negative health effects, including a disproportionate toll from the current coronavirus pandemic. This is an existence wholly foreign to white Americans. In order for us to change the way police interact with black Americans, we need to change the systems that perpetuate these barriers. This segregation of experience has separated people of color from many of the opportunities afforded to white people, but has also separated white people from seeing the reality that is being a person of color in America. This collective choice by white America to believe that each of these deaths were an isolated incident is willful ignorance on our part and evidence of our own complicity. The Collier County Democratic Party stands with the protesters in demanding more from our government and from the police, but white Americans must also demand more from themselves. And for those wondering, this first part of the podcast has been 5 minutes and 30 seconds. Nearly 3 minutes more would elapse in the time that George Floyd was held down on the ground with a knee on his neck. We'll be right back with our interview with Dr. Amanda Phelan. If you guys are interested in hearing more about what's going on with the local Democratic Party, the Florida Democratic Party, local candidates, events, when they are possible again, and local news, there are a number of ways you can hear from us. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or just check in at our website for all the local Democratic Party info. You can find all of these signups on our website at www.collierdems.org. That's www.collierdems.org. Thank you for all your support. On this week's episode of The Roundup, we have Dr. Amanda Phelan. She is an economist with University of Florida's Warrington College of Business, uh, where she lectures on international business, global strategy, and managerial economics. Her areas of specialization include developmental economics, environmental economics, gender issues, innovation and intellectual property rights, and international business. Dr. Phelan, thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's go ahead and start with what is the state of the economy right now? Obviously, everyone knows that it's pretty bad, but in terms of jobs and economic activity, how is the U.S. and the state of Florida doing compared to where we were before the pandemic really hit? Before the pandemic, we were uh, in the middle of the longest period of economic growth uh, that we had seen. Our unemployment rate nationally in February before the shutdowns began was at three and a half percent. Now we have unemployment at about 15 percent. That's the highest unemployment rate that this country's seen since the Great Depression. Over 40 million Americans have filed for unemployment claims. Um, just to give you a little bit of comparison, 
comparison, during the Great Recession, about 8.7 million jobs were lost. And the Great Depression unemployment rate was closer to 25%. So we're not seeing things as bad as they were during the Great Depression, but certainly much worse than they were in terms of unemployment uh, during, during the Great Recession. I think the other thing to keep in mind when we consider the unemployment rate is the specific definition that the government has for the unemployment rate, which is that it counts people who are um, unemployed and actively looking for work. So this means that if you have someone who's what is called a discouraged worker, um, someone who's decided that it's not worth trying to find a job at this time, they're not counted as unemployed. In addition to that, if you have any work at all, whether it's full-time or part-time, you're gonna be counted as employed. So people who may still have jobs but may have had their hours cut back significantly are not gonna be included in that number. So these particular statistics, I think are most likely understating the effect that the pandemic is currently having on the labor market. What, what are we seeing in terms of Florida? Right, in Florida, uh, before COVID, our unemployment rate was about 2.8%. As of April, it's pushing 13%. So we're doing better than the national average by a bit. And only four states now across the country actually have unemployment rates that remain in the single digits. And those states include Maryland, Nebraska, North Dakota, and Utah. Um, there are, however, other states that are doing much worse than we are. Nevada has an unemployment rate over 28%, Hawaii 22%, Michigan almost 23%. And all of these numbers, by the way, are from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and your listeners can find them at bls.gov. Um, here in Florida, between mid-March and mid-May, we've seen almost 2.4 million unemployment claims. Now, during that same period last year, in 2019, there were only 60,000 employment claims. So uh, the other issue, which I'm uh, sure your listeners are aware of is the difficulties and challenges that people applying for unemployment have been having with the Florida unemployment system. So currently, of those 2.4 million unemployment claims that have been filed in our state, only about half of them have actually been paid out. Wow. And so when you say that, the governor is saying in his statements that 99.9% of those have been that have filled out the form and qualified have been paid um, is this a, is he re referencing something to do with the unemployment website issues that have been going on or because half and 99.9% right. are two wildly different numbers. Right. I mean, the half number is just what I've been reading in news reports from news outlets around the state, you know, local Politico, Tallahassee Democrat, Miami, Tampa Bay Times, you know, all of the local newspapers. Um, so <laughs> he could potentially be referring to, uh, to a different a different number. But um, I do know that as of today, there's still a significant portion of Floridians that are having trouble even accessing the website. I believe today a new system was rolled out where they have to enter into a virtual a virtual waiting room before they are even allowed to use the site, um, waiting sometimes up to an hour. And yeah, and this is two and a half months after yes. after the this all started. Yes, and of course, I think that uh, with the unemployment system, my understanding now I'm not an expert in this area, but just reading the news reports like everybody else, I think that this is a problem that was sort of baked into the system under the last governor. Um, so it's it's been around for a while, is my understanding. Right. 
So the uh, economic data that we're seeing, all these these numbers, you know, 40 million right. unemployed, et cetera. You know, you mentioned this briefly uh, a minute ago, but what? how does that compare historically with past uh, recessions and even the Great Depression? Sure. So in Florida during the Great Recession, um, our unemployment rate topped out at 11.2 percent. Um, so we're definitely doing a bit worse than we were at that time. Uh, however, at the Great Depression, a lot of us um, may not be aware of our own state's history. Um, during the Great Depression, Florida was dealing with a lot of other disasters during that time. So in 1926 and 1928, just before the stock market crash of 1929, Florida had endured two category four hurricanes, as well as a Mediterranean fruit fly infestation. So during that time, right before the Great Depression hit, our citrus production fell by about 60%. And then of course, after the stock market crashed in 1929, the bottom fell out of the tourism industry, which you know caused things to, to get even worse. So as I said before, things are definitely worse than they were economically speaking during the Great Recession, but we have not yet thankfully plumbed the depths that we saw during the Great Depression. So let's talk about what the, the blend of industries and sectors that Florida has that makes up our economy. Can you just briefly go over what what is Florida in terms of economics Right, Pie. right. Well, Florida, as you know, we are um, a global center for tourism. That's really one of our top industries, uh, along with agriculture and aviation and aerospace. Um, a really interesting statistic that surprised me when I saw it is that when it comes to agriculture, actually two thirds of land in the state of Florida is used for either agriculture or natural resource management. And that's according to UF IFAS. Um, so you can find that information there as well. Um, in terms of aerospace and aviation, aircraft, that's our top export. So those are the three big industries that our economy really relies on. Obviously, um, tourism has has plunged. Air traffic and occupancy rates have, have declined sharply since this crisis began. And of course, we get a lot of our sales tax revenue from tourists spending money here. So our tax intake is also declining, is also declining as well. All of these sectors, whether we're talking about you know, food, people being able to buy food or sell food, um, people being able to travel or people, you know, ordering aircraft because they think that more people are going to be traveling. All of our main industries have been hit hard globally. And so, of course, it's going to affect Florida as well. So let's uh, let's talk about the stock market sure. real quick. Um, it it, uh, it seems to be uh, surprisingly buoyant, uh, you know, after losing nearly all of the economic gains of the previous three years uh, and dropping somewhere near 30 percent, right. um, it has really risen back up to uh, 25,000 and has kind of stayed pretty steady despite a string of economic numbers that would pull it down. Uh, can can you explain what what is the disconnect between the stock market and these other numbers right. or if there's not a disconnect, uh, what does that indicate? Right. So I don't think there's a disconnect. And the shortest answer for that is because the stock market is not the economy. Um, the stock market is just one of more than a dozen or more indicators that can help us create a picture of 
what a country's economic health is. And some of these indicators are backward looking, um, meaning they tell us data that happened you know, last quarter or last year. And some of the indicators are forward looking. Um, they're data points that help us predict what's going to happen. So the stock market is what we call a forward looking indicator. So market tells us what market participants think about where the market is headed. So the stock market is basically telling us that people who play the stock market are thinking positively about the future. It's not really thinking about where the economy is today or where it was last month or last week. So the stock market as a whole sees some positive things ahead. First of all, they're happy with the economic stimulus um, that the federal government passed to shore up the economy. Second, there are predictions that we're seeing the economy bottom out as the country is starting to reopen slowly. That's not to say that we're growing fast and that things are back to normal, but we're less negative than we were. And, um, you know, on a separate note, generally speaking, um, if you're a long-term investor, you can invest in stocks or you can invest in bonds. So if you look at yields on government bonds going into the pandemic, some of them were below 2%. And by mid-May, they fell to 0.7%. So if you're looking for an investment that has a higher yield, a higher return, the stock market is definitely going to be the place to look. Now, the other thing that I wanted to mention about the stock market that a lot of people don't know is that when we look at what, quote unquote, the market is doing, it usually refers to the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And that is actually just 30 stocks um, from the 30 highest priced companies. So it's a very small snapshot of even what the stock market itself is. The S&P 500, of course, is 500 of those companies and the NASDAQ is more focused on tech companies. Um, but yeah, the, the Dow Jones is just a very, very narrow gauge and it's not something that I tend to rely on when I wanna ask the question and answer, how's the economy doing today? Yeah, so we've talked about what the economy looks like today, but let's uh, take a look at what it looked like before coronavirus. You know, a lot of the focus after the pandemic has hit has been on the damage that has happened to the economy since the crisis started. But what did the economy look like before the pandemic hit and the shutdown started to take place? So before the pandemic, we were, as I mentioned, at the at up top in the middle of the longest economic expansion on record. Um, but what is really interesting and important for me is to kind of open the box on these overall headline numbers. So we look at the longest expansion, the longest expansion, increasing GDP, falling unemployment. What these positive headline numbers have really masked is a diverging economy. Um, so uh, uh, a research group called the Economic Innovation Group at EIG.org, they do a lot of work um, examining exactly where economic growth in this country does and doesn't happen down to the zip code. And they have something called the Distressed Communities Index, if your listeners are interested in finding more information. And what their data has shown is that since the Great Recession, we've seen 
excellent economic and job growth in the richest 20% of US zip codes. And these are tending to be urban, suburban, and ex-urban areas. The opposite has been true in the bottom performing zip codes. So a great deal of the country hears about these great headline numbers. We have record low unemployment. We have uh, continued GDP growth, but they don't see it in their own towns. They don't see it in their own families, and they certainly don't see it in their own wallets. Right, and one of the most disruptive political forces in the last decade or so has been the rise of economic populism, uh, people who believe the economic system is rigged, who believe that globalism and global supply chains are bad for the average worker or that nations should retreat towards a more nationalist approach of tariffs or trade wars. I mean, as an economist, what do you think has caused this? Is it simply the difference between what elites are saying about the economy versus what's felt by the average worker, uh, or is there more to it? Well, I think it has to go back to what I just mentioned, which is the divergence in the in the economy. I think that there's um, obviously it's been documented. Um, there's been a great amount of inequality. There is a great amount of inequality um, in our economy in terms of who has resources and who doesn't have resources. But I think that even more important, there's an inequality of opportunity. Right. So there's this sense that where you were born is going to determine where you end up. And I think that the protests that we're seeing, um, you know, it, this past weekend uh, with all of the, the, the deaths that have happened uh, of African-American men and women at the hands of, of law enforcement um, in some ways, in some ways speaks, speaks to that, that people are, are, frustrated and angered um, by the fact that they can't move beyond the sort of box that other people have have put them in. And that's not stating it nearly nearly strongly enough. But it's not surprising to me that people feel that the system is rigged because on the one hand, you have these great headline numbers. And then on your own block and your own house, you don't see it. Things are actually harder for me and my family. And you know what? Those You're right. Things are harder. And that's because while our economy has been growing and unemployment has been falling, wages have not been rising. And when you adjust wages for inflation, um, they've actually gone down since 2000 or since the, the 1970s. So I, I'm just not at all surprised that there's this backlash um, to, to globalization and to, to all of you know, all of the policies and programs that people view that elites have put in into place uh, to make things better, because it hasn't really made it better for everybody. Let's talk about, you know, there's a lot of talk about a V-shaped recovery. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, to me and to a lot of people, it feels like hopeful thinking that there's going to be a V-shaped recovery. But can you explain what that is? And sure. is that something that we can really expect here in, in Florida? Sure. So historically, um, recessions uh, happen quickly and they end quickly. So that's what the the V refers to. Is if you think of if you think of economic growth as a line going across time, it falls very quickly. We bottom out and then we we jump back up. The line of growth jump backs up. Um, that was actually not 
what happened at the end of the Great Recession. We have not had a V-shaped recovery at all, but a, really a slog, a long, slow climb. And what we've seen since the end of the Great Recession is some indicators are looking great, like that low unemployment and the consistent GDP growth, but others like average income and wages, and also the skill level and stability of jobs available, not looking so great. So the other, the other thing to note about the Great Recession is that we had another recession prior to that, 2000-2001, and that recovery was known as a jobless recovery. So when we came out of the 2001 recession, our economic growth recovered, but our labor market did not recover completely. So going into the Great Recession, our labor market was already, was already pretty weak. And if we think about the job recovery since the Great Recession, the data has shown that the jobs that have come back, um, unemployment rate is low, but the jobs tend to be lower skill, lower wage, uh, without things like benefits, uh, healthcare, insurance, sick days, vacation days, uh, et cetera. So we are now in a situation where um, we've had significant economic disruption and I don't see a V-shaped recovery happening. And the main reason for that, I think, is because I don't know that consumers, Americans are confident enough in the economy to get back out there and start spending. And indeed, the, the data on, on spending um, is not looking good. Yeah, so you talked about consumer confidence and their and and people's psychology. That's I really wanted to ask about that. I mean, uh, you kind of hit on it, which is you know if people don't feel comfortable enough to go out and spend their money, uh, then opening back up doesn't seem like it would uh, necessarily mean that the economy goes back to normal. Can you speak about consumer confidence? What does that yeah, like in, this in is America. this is key. What I want your listeners to remember, and anybody who hears this to remember, is that um, executive orders that politicians sign can open doors, but they can't force people to walk through them. And I think that's really, really important. Just like all the other data that we've seen, the data on consumer confidence appears to be bottoming out, but it remains at record lows. So here in Florida, between um, January 1st and May 1st, it fell 27%, consumer confidence did. Since then, we've recovered by about three percentage points. Uh, so it's getting a little better, but it's very, very low. In addition to that, um, I just saw a new paper that came out today, a working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research, and I'll just um, plug their website, nber.org. Um, it's a great place to get the latest economic research, they were able to do some comparisons and they noted that lockdowns are not necessarily destroying jobs. And they were able to calculate that about half of the jobs, at most half of the jobs lost both in the US and the UK are due to lockdowns. Um, the fact is, is that if people see and hear of infections around them, they will not feel confident or comfortable enough to go out and uh, shop and dine and go to movies and, and spend their money. And that's really, really important for the American economy because if you look at our GDP, about 70% of our GDP consists of consumer spending, just us 
buying stuff. And most of what we buy um, is services. And we have not been able to, to, to do that during this lockdown. And until people feel confident and comfortable that they can go to a restaurant or go to a salon and not be around sick people and not get sick, then you know you can tell the salon owners that they can open, but that doesn't mean that everybody's going to go get their nails done. So let's take a let's take a a detour a little bit. I want to talk about green jobs and and environmental policies that are looking at there's a lot of talk around pushing for economic policies that incentivize businesses to move toward a more energy efficient model or to a whole new green economy starting up whole new industries and we've seen with COVID 19 there have been reports where we've seen significant decreases in global carbon output Mm -hmm. um, across the world and uh, is this a good time to start a shift towards a green economy because we're already seeing these dramatic decreases. What kind of opportunities and what kind of pitfalls does an economist see from that? So my view of the green economy is that we are probably going to be forced into developing it because whether you, and I tell my students this, uh, whether you believe in it or not, um, climate change is coming. It's here. Its effects are already here in a lot of places. And from as someone who's a lecturer in a college of business, it always amazes me um, sort of the politics of climate change because there is a heck of a lot of money to be made in climate change mitigation technology, in real estate investment in certain areas of of the country, in investing in new technologies, uh, things like desalinization. I mean, solar energy. What whatever the case may be, it's um, it's an incredible new frontier, and it's one of the reasons why I I do feel I do feel very hopeful and optimistic. And I think that we are on the verge of really changing how our economy operates fundamentally. I think that COVID is going to to add to that. And if you'll indulge me just a, a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about our country's economic history to give people an idea of what I'm talking about when I when I discuss, you know, a complete shift in our economy. If you go all the way back to the beginning of our country, 1776, you know, what was the main thing that supported our economy? We were an agrarian society. So it was it was farming. And then we sort of moved to industrialization. Um, we became more manufacturing. And then after World War II, more higher tech manufacturing. And now we've transitioned into this sort of tertiary or services-based economy that focuses on high technology, computers, the internet, etc. So we've seen over the course of history, our economy shift seismically, significantly over hundreds of years. And these shifts have completely altered the way that Americans live, the way that Americans work, the way that Americans think. And one thing that I think is really interesting to do particularly if you have some listeners who are uh, my age and older in their 40s and 50s and older, is to think back to the 70s and 80s and to think about the really big companies that were that really defined the economy and defined big business at that time. And then to think about the companies um, that do so today. 
And what's fascinating to me is that the largest companies, the most important companies today, we think are Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft. Well, Microsoft and Apple did exist in the 1980s, but a lot of the industry and work that they do did not did not yet exist. So when I think about what the economy looked like in the 1980s and what technology was like in the 1980s and what we have today, what I imagine is, and I don't mean in a fantastical way, what I, what I see happening is a complete shift of the economy where you have businesses and technologies being created to deal with climate change, um, to mitigate the effects of climate change, and it's going to create industries, sectors, companies, and technologies that do not exist today in the same way that cell phones really didn't exist in the 1970s or email didn't really exist um, in the 1970s. So do you feel like that's inevitable? I do. I do. I agree. I think, I mean, if climate change continues, especially if we don't do anything, then we're going to be forced into into creating uh, systems and, and industries that deal with it. Uh, and so we will be forced to move into it. And quite frankly, climate change, just like COVID, doesn't really care. Ex exactly. It is. It doesn't really care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. You know, if you're it, it's it's going to it's going to affect you. Yeah, exactly. So President Trump has used tariffs throughout his first term of office, most notably with China, uh, but also with Canada and the European yeah. Union. What? What are the impacts of tariffs on the U.S. economy? I mean, he's done it for three yeah. years now, and and we just kind of move forward with it. But you know, I don't, you know, you don't put on a bill, right? How much of this is is caused by a tariff? Can you explain tariffs and how they work and and what impact they're sure. having? Sure. So tariff, it's a it's a tax on imported goods, and despite what the current administration tells you, um, China is not paying for these tariffs. Um, it is American importers who are paying for those tariffs. And to the extent that an importer can pass the cost along to the buyer, um, she will. She will. So if they can still get the same amount of business or close to it, they will pass along those costs. And there have been um, several papers out over the last three years looking at the effects, particularly of the Trump tariffs and imposing tariffs is a tax increase on American consumers, period. That's, it, it just, it is, it is a tax. Tariffs are a tax on American consumers. So uh, let's uh, finish up here. How, how, how should listeners interpret the data that they see in headlines and Twitter feeds? Where can they go? What sources can they look to to get an accurate depiction of what the economy is doing and how it how it's functioning. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really good question because uh, we have a huge number of sources where we can get news and not all of it is reliable. Um, I really rely on the Wall Street Journal. Their reporting, um, not so much their editorial page, but their reporting is really solid. And they have a daily economic roundup that is extremely useful that I get delivered to my mailbox, my email inbox every day. I would also advise your listeners to get news from a range of sources, including an international perspective. I like to look at the BBC News. Um, I'm also fluent in French, so I read French news sources. So if you have multilingual listeners, 
I would encourage them to look for news sources in other languages as well. You can also get really interesting, and if you're looking for more deep analysis, um, going to think tanks is great. If you're looking for something a little more left-leaning, um, I would advise the Center for American Progress. On the right, we have the American Enterprise Institute, and then sort of more down the middle is the Brookings Institution, which is my favorite think tank. And then there are a couple of economists that I like to follow on Twitter. Um, one of them is Jared Bernstein, and he is a former economic advisor to Vice President Joe Biden. And then also Greg Mankiw, who is a Harvard economist and former advisor to President George W. Bush. So lots of really reliable information out there. It's just a matter of sifting through all of, all of the crap. Yeah. So uh, last question, what part of the economic crisis do you feel is misunderstood by the average person? Well, and I, I think part of this is the media's fault, quote unquote, the media writ large. But somehow there's been a framing of what's happening right now as a choice between either opening up the economy or saving lives. But there, that is a false choice. There's not a choice between those two. Uh, the fact is, as we talked about earlier, the economy can't and won't reopen until people believe that they and their loved ones are safe. I mentioned earlier that the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, is a great place for the latest economic research. Um, one recent paper by scholars from UCLA and Harvard, it was titled Reopening Scenarios, in case your listeners want to look it up. They did some simulations to estimate what would happen if we are to reopen, go back to work and non-work activities like going to bars, restaurants and parties, et cetera. So they estimated that if we were to reopen and people went back to work, went back to parties and bars at 50% of the pre-COVID level, so not back to 100% normal, but 50% normal, they find that that would actually cause a second round of contagion and deaths and that that would most likely lead governors to impose shutdowns again and the cycle of economic collapse would continue. So in order to stop that cycle of opening an infection, reinfection and shutdown, I think that it's really important to have testing, tracing, contact program. And unfortunately, we haven't seen that developed or rolled out in any organized national way since this entire crisis began. Yeah, I, I'm I'm still waiting yes. for that, but um, we'll uh, we'll keep waiting, and hopefully we'll get we'll get on that that train here soon. Dr. Phelan, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. We know that everyone is going through a tough time right now, and many have lost their jobs or have had their pay cut because of the pandemic. Your local Democratic Party is a fully volunteer force of dedicated Democrats who are continuing to work hard to defeat Donald Trump and elect Democrats up and down the ballot for this November. This election is the most important of our lifetime, and we see how important it is to have competent and effective leadership in all areas of government, from the White House to the State House. Every donation to the Collier County Democratic Party supports Democratic candidates here in Collier County and helps us to educate, register, and motivate voters to get to the polls. Please go to www.collierdems.org. That's www.collierdems.org. And click on the red donate button to help. We thank you for your support.
All right, we're going to go on to our panel discussion. Uh, we have our normal crew here with me, uh, Amber and Linda. Hey, guys. Hey, Jeff. As opposed to the abnormal crew, just saying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Amber, do you want to go ahead and dive in on today's topic? We're going to focus on one topic that's really important to the local community and the effects that it has nationally. Yeah, um, so I wanted to discuss the articles and news stories that I've seen recently about the COVID-19 cases increasing almost tenfold in Immokalee in recent weeks. I think in the last um, in the last three weeks or so, the Florida National Guard was out there in the beginning of May, and I, I guess before that time, there were only about 44 confirmed cases, and um, since then, as of last Thursday, it's now jumped up to 488 cases, and this is uh, according to the Naples Daily News, so that's within a matter of about three weeks' time. Immokalee is a relatively small community. It has less than 25,000 residents, so it's a bit surprising. In fact, if you look at the Florida Department of Health's website, Immokalee is one of only three, three communities that is showing up in red as one of the coronavirus hotspots. So that's definitely a concern. And, it, and it's already showing more cases than some uh, several larger cities in Florida. So obviously the question that you, know, if you ask yourself is, well, why is that? What, what is making that a hotbed of activity, which I think we'll kind of get into. Um, but one thing that's happened recently is Doctors Without Borders has been out there the last several weeks, and which is kind of interesting because, you know, they're a world aid, in, aid organization and have been out there helping the citizens of Immokalee. And, you know, they're all over the world in some of the poorest countries um, helping people. But, but before that, the people have been calling an alarm about this community. The, the founder of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers wrote an op-ed in the New York Times over two months ago, making a plea that these farming communities were essentially ticking time bombs for the virus. So I thought it would be, obviously, as living in Collier County, that these are fe fellow Collier County residents, it's important to understand and know what's going on just, you know, a mere 30 miles away from from Naples, but it's also interesting to look at what is the reason for, for why it's happening there. And uh, Linda, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. So for preparing for this podcast, you and I, you discovered all these articles that kind of highlight what's happening over in Immokalee. And I found a couple of things super interesting about the articles and potentially why this is happening in the community of Immokalee, but can be extrapolated to other communities of minorities throughout the United States. So there were five interesting tenets of this kind of socioeconomic disparity. So one, that uh, a lot of our minority communities do not have the ability to stay home. They just don't. Two, a lot of our minority communities live in overcrowded urban areas or they live in conditions of overcrowding. Three, another sentient point that I found was that a lot of these minority communities for a variety of reasons do not have access to adequate health care. They are not able to see doctors or be close to hospitals or a variety of other things. 
Next is that for a variety of reasons, they have what's called a, a comorbidity illnesses. For example, like diabetes, hypertension, um, and heart disease. That data has been showing adversely affect you when you have COVID-19. And then also something that cannot be marginalized is that we have language and educational barriers in our minority communities that may prevent them from understanding the gravity of, of what's happening in our country right now in the face of COVID-19. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, really what these come down to all of those factors are, are derivative of economic policies. So the impact of COVID-19 on communities of color across the country and more specifically in Immokalee are really a result of economic policies that hurt all low-income workers. But because of long-term systemic issues in our society, those disproportionately hurt workers of color because they make up a larger percentage of low-income workers in our country. So. Uh, communities like Immokalee are feeling not only the pain of the falling economy, but also they're dealing with a disproportionate share of the pandemic. And, you know, I think it's really important because I took a, a different tack looking at these. Um, I, I looked specifically into what kind of policies um, or what kind of policies have been promoted that led to the these types of the five men- uh, five criteria that you outlined. Let's let's go through it a couple. One is sure. just the minimum wage. The the minimum wage here in this country is at seven dollars and fifty cents, and it has stagnated over the last twenty years. Republicans have refused to look into any type of minimum wage increase whatsoever. Uh, the Democratic House passed a bill in twenty nineteen to raise the minimum wage up to fifteen dollars an hour. A a minimum wage number that is supported by over 70% of Americans, according to Pew Research, that that should be the new uh, minimum wage. And Democrats, it's not from a lack of trying, Democrats have done that 20 out of the last 22 increases of the federal minimum wage have been done by the Democratic Party. And the last three have been by the Democratic Party in the last 15 to 20 years. Um, But as per usual, that $15 minimum wage bill that went through in 20. 19 was blocked by the Republicans and the Senate was never even taken up for a vote, was just ignored. Um, you know, but the, the common problem is that Republicans only spend money on on rich people. If you look at nationally, President Trump and Republican lawmakers passed a tax cut for corporations and rich people that spent one point four trillion dollars uh, here in Collier just last month. Commissioners ignored requests from the Coalition of Immokalee Workers calling for a field hospital. Naples Daily News reported that in early April that the coalition was requesting, was sending out petitions requesting for a field hospital to prepare for an outbreak in the Immokalee area, and they were ignored. They were told that there was no need for a field hospital in Immokalee. And that's one of the reasons that the Doctors Without Borders was eventually came out there was I think the Coalition for Immokalee Workers was a big part of that, and they saw that the this was a great need out of all the needs that they addressed. This was one of the, the great needs and it wasn't heard by our County, but it was heard by an aid organization. And, and the irony of that is just, just four days ago, the County commissioners of Collier County approved a $2 million beach renourishment proposal. So 
in the middle of a pandemic, when Immokalee is asking for a field hospital to deal with the pandemic surge, they're told there's no need to do that. We're not going to spend the money. But then in the middle of a pandemic, they'll approve a $2 million beach renourishment plan. And that is the type of disparity that you see. And what, what is the distinct difference? The distinct difference is there are rich people near the beach and there are no rich people in Immokalee. And that is the difference. If you look at programs that help poor people, this is nationwide. Again, they pass that tax cut that disproportionately helps corporations and millionaires. And then in the middle of the pandemic, the Trump administration is pursuing cuts in food stamps. In Florida, Republicans have cut funding to Bright Futures over the last decade, and those cuts disproportionately help hurt minorities and the people who are poorest and need those yeah, funds who the need most. the money, who parents aren't going to fund their, be able to fund their education without it. Correct. And lastly, they didn't expand the Medicare expansion. So when Obamacare went through and the state of Florida could have increased their Medicare expansion, over 800,000 Floridians would have been included into health insurance that would be helpful right now during this pandemic if they had it. There's still reports right now that there are over 500,000 Floridians who are not insured who would be eligible for the Medicaid expansion if Florida had taken it. So Republicans had no interest in doing that. And then here in Collier County, 44% of Immokalee lived below, lives below the poverty line. That was before the pandemic in a booming economy with a county budget, annual budget of $1 billion. So the bottom line is Republicans open the pocketbook with full force for rich people. But whenever it's for a poor person's cause, they have fiduciary responsibilities that, rem- that relieve them of the, of the obligation to deal with it. And what we're seeing in Immokalee is a result of those types of policies that then come to fruition where they cannot get health care. They, they do not have the minimum wage enough to pay to be able to step away. Their jobs do not give them any ability to self-quarantine. They have no paid time leave. There's all of these types of things lead to an exploding epidemic in a, in a community of color. And that's across the board. And what I think is particularly egregious in the Immokalee and other farm working communities, obviously anything in where you're seeing a, a population of a particular group of people that is being affected by this more than others, that's a problem. But in particular in the farm working communities like Immokalee is that we deem these workers to be essential. So when the pandemic is coming and everybody's jobs are are everybody stay home, everybody shelter in place. They don't have that option because their jobs are essential and we need to continue to feed our population. Yet at the same time, we don't take care of them. And one of the things I think from the, I think it was from the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, they said that the workers there are essential, but they are deemed expendable. Right. And the problem, as Linda said earlier, was they can't stop going to work. Mm-hmm. They live in very close proximity to everyone else. They and don't work. have access to health care and work. Yeah. They don't have access to health care. So it's like, okay, you're tested. Now go self-quarantine. And they're going to look at you like, there's, I don't eat if I self-quarantine. Exactly. I don't have I a, so There's not a room to spare. There's not a... Right. Where do I self-quarantine? And so this is where I think 
especially people here locally, when they read about this stuff, there's these token gestures of, oh, we've got testing or we're doing this. And people get to kind of just wash their minds of the, of the problem and say, well, it's being handled. Yeah. It's not the problem being is systemic in the first place without it, this pandemic. And it's just creating the conditions to where you have something like this, that it's kind of a perfect storm, but those problems were already there. Yeah. Because the problems are inherently economic. They're inherently, they're inherently structurally economic. I mean, what, what does it tell you that we live in a city like Naples where earlier this year they raised $40 million at a wine auction and 44% of Immokalee lives in below poverty. Both of those are in the same County. And you're telling like, so there, there are, it's just, it's a fundamental difference in the way most people here in, in Collier County live. They, Immokalee is not part of Collier County in the view of so many people, especially the way Republicans operate. Their entire economic strategy is completely built around a myth, which is that everyone can be a self-made man and pull themselves up by their bootstraps and their economic circumstances at birth have no impact on their long-term chances at success. And every study out there from every economic think tank shows that that is distinctly not the case. Yet the Republicans continue to pursue policies that undermine the people at the lowest end of the income structure. And that's why why it's going to continue until somebody votes for somebody who's going to do things differently. Right. You see that you'll always see the like cases where there's some kid who grew up in poverty and studied hard and went to school and ended up getting, getting scholarships and moving on to some big position and some company. But those are, those cases are so few and far between that. Yeah, they're nice. It's nice to hear that, but that is almost impossible. Like that kid had to defy so many odds in order to get to that point. Very much so. Another thing that I, I read about, which it has to do with, there is no hospital out right. in the Immokalee There's not area. one hospital um, bed in all of Immokalee. And they have to routinely drive 40 minutes to an hour to get to the local hospital. They have to use ambulance care when they need to go to the ER often. And one of the more depressing things that I came up with in this research is that there has been a doctor who has been trying to set up a 25-bed hospital in Immokalee for the last three years. And in his efforts to start doing that in 2018, NCH, Naples Community Health, wrote a 50-page opposition paper to the state of Florida asking them to deny the right for that field hospital to be created in 2018. There was a great New York Times article about this. In 2019, NCH ended up dropping that because of public outcry that people were upset that this that they were doing this. But this is the type of of play that that Immokalee has to deal with. I mean, imagine if if NCH had never put forth those objections, that hospital could have been started and could be close to being completed, and that would change the way Immokalee residents have to live in a large way. And these are the types of things that happen in Collier County that are just so depressing when you think about it, because it's like we have plenty of money. As I said, we have a billion dollar annual budget that the county commissioners have. And why is Immokalee still in such poverty? 
Well, I, I'm speechless because all that really sucks. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I didn't I didn't know that was our annual bu- budget. I had not once heard that NCH would go to such lengths to block a hospital in a in an area that really needs it. To me, the, the bigger point here, when I make the point that it's economic policies that put people in place, there's there's pretty strong evidence that suggests that your income and where you fall on the income scale is determinative of your health and your health outcomes. So for instance, there are a couple studies that show that less than one third of low income workers obtain health insurance through their employer compared to 60% of high income workers will get health insurance through their employer. This is another, this ties into Medicare expansion, uh, Medicaid expansion that we looked at. It ties into Democrats push to look for a Medicare for all option. So a public option, something where, where low income earners who don't qualify these less than, you know, these two third of low income earners who don't get their health insurance through their employer can go and try to get either through Medicaid expansion, if the state of Florida would expand Medicaid, or they can get it through if we pass some sort of Medicare for all option where people can go in and get health insurance. That would help in terms of, of having these having income not be determinative of how you're you are going to be healthy. I think also that Jeff, you've touched on it in previous conversations about what Republicans think of of any type of programs that could be called assistance programs for our low income communities. And they just I think as a party, I think it's fair and safe to say that they don't find those programs a priority. The Republican sentiment, for lack of a better way to say it, not just kind of kicking the Republican Party in the shins all the time, but their ethos is that they, these folks should be working harder. They should be pulling themselves up from their bootstraps. They could do this if they just, I don't know, worked another job, you know, had three jobs. I don't know, ate a little more fruit. I find it's a very draconian way to think. Obviously, what we've done in this country for eons isn't working. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, really, everything started to shift in the 70s um, towards moving more of income to the upper uh, upper income brackets. So in 1978, for example, the top 10 percent of earners earned 33 percent of all the income in the United States. Uh, by 2014, the top 10% earned 50% of all income in the United States. So they, they effectively picked up uh, 17 percentage points of the entire earnings of the United States in that 40-year period, roughly 36-year period. But if you look at what the real wage average is. So Pew Research does a, a look at the real wage average and, and what that is, is basically purchasing power. So they take what the wage it was at a certain time period and they adjust it for inflation so that we can kind of understand, does the wages of today, uh, you know, how does that correlate to wages of a couple decades ago? How much can someone buy uh, with that particular wage. And if you look in from 1970s till now, the purchasing power 
adjusted for inflation is nearly identical. It, it has not gone up more than maybe one or two percentage points as opposed to what the top 10% have seen where they've seen 17% of all income in the United States go more to that top income bracket. So what we've seen is this widening of income inequality that is on par with the Gilded Age uh, of the late 1890s, early 1900s, where just so much of the income in the country was going to the very, very top percentage of earners. And that has dramatic effects across every aspect of society from not just in financial terms, but in terms of social strife. Uh, and, and, and we're seeing it right now where you, you have so much and, and we saw it in the 2016 election with with President Trump. And, we, and we've seen it with the, the rise of, of Bernie Sanders and and and, uh, you know, a consciousness of the the American worker coming back into uh, the fold where people are saying, I'm not getting anywhere. They I don't- have a theory about that, too. And and. It's it's messaging, and we all know the Republican Party is essentially amazing at a negative message. Who is who bears the face of the evil that you want to vanquish? Who bears that face? And I think they do a really great job of saying that if you and you and your taxes help this social program, then that is where your money is going. And do you want your money to go there? I, uh, the conversations I have with Republicans, Republicans that are close to me, uh, dare I say my own family, they're afraid that the Democrats are going to take their wealth from them. It, it is a predominant fear b- because we want to help people. We want to help economic disparity. Somehow that's a four letter word. Yeah, I agree. But we're going to go ahead and end it right there. You know, if anybody wants to, to find out more about how they can help out in Immokalee, because this, this situation really isn't going away. We've kind of talked about at length how the problems that are occurring out there with regard to the COVID crisis isn't really specific about the virus. It is more derivative of economic policies and decisions made here locally at the state level and nationally that impact communities of color predominantly that need to get addressed. And the only way that you're going to be able to fix that in the long term to prevent not only something like COVID, but, but all of the other negative health outcomes that are associated with income and those types of things is to, is to elect legislatures, local county commissioners, presidents who value fixing those issues and value putting money into fixing those issues, putting money into low-income communities to help them become healthier and and more prosperous. So you can always volunteer here at our website, callyourdems.org, or you can reach out to many of the uh, great associations. I would recommend the Coalition of Immokalee Workers because they have been out there the longest and they're the most uh, aware of the situation and what's going on. Um, And we will put notes in the show notes to their website and how you can get involved. Uh, Amber, Linda, 
Thank you very much thank for you. coming on, yes. as always. That's our show. I want to thank Dr. Phelan for coming on, and thanks to Agent 13 for our theme song. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcasts. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have 151 days left until Election Day, so please sign up to help. This country needs you to step up. Hope everyone's staying safe out there. Until next time, so long. Thank you.